Have you ever had the ending of a story told to you before you had a chance to finish it? Several years ago, I was reading through 1984, trying to make up for being a very lazy high school student. And I'm talking about the book with Julie, who had read it in high school, and she just blurts out the end to me as I'm about three quarters of the way through the book. The hope that I've been holding out that these characters were going to somehow escape and go on to live some semblance of a happy life was crushed. Because she told me they're not going to make it. Now, I knew the end, but I didn't know how things were going to play out, as there was a still good, a good bit of the story left. Now, as we continue, uh, the passage last week, the disciples, in awe of calming the storm, asked the question, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? In our text today, we get the answer from those who knew the end of the story. They know what sort of man Jesus is, and they know where all of this is going, But like me, after being told at the end of 1984, they're unsure of how the story is going to lead there. As we continue the story of Jesus' life on earth, please turn with me to Matthew 8, 28 through 34. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in front of you. And the text this morning is on page 813. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Matthew 8, 28 through 34 says this. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass by. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged them, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of the pigs. And he said to them, Go, So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The message of the story this morning is that Jesus has authority over all things, including those who are set against him. Three points from this text are first, that Jesus' authority is recognized in verses 28 to 31. The second is Jesus' authority is exercised in verse 32. And the third is that we see the response to Jesus' authority in verses 33 through 34. So first, Jesus' authority is recognized As we said, Jesus had just calmed the storm, exercising his authority over the material world. And the disciples who were afraid of the storm were now in awe of Jesus. Who is this man? The text doesn't say that Jesus tells them. Instead, the story in verse 28 moves immediately to them arriving on the other side of the sea. They just had a near-death experience, only to have Jesus wake up and calm the storm with only his words. They step off the boat, likely very happy to see dry land. And the question ringing in their heads was probably, what sort of man is this that could stop such an unimaginably powerful force? And as they get off the boat, they meet another unimaginably powerful force that tells them who he is. The text says that two demon-possessed men met Jesus. And as we get into this this morning, there's a couple of things that we just need to 
take into consideration. And the first is that in other texts, there's only one demon-possessed man mentioned, and some would use this as a means of saying, well, you know, the gospel and the Bible are unreliable, but this isn't a necessary conclusion. It could be simply that Mark wanted to focus on that man's positive response to Jesus and his willingness and desire to follow him. Here in Matthew, the focus seems to be on the rejection of Jesus by the townspeople. So Matthew may have just mentioned them as a matter of fact. The second thing I want us to consider this morning is the reality of demonic forces in general and possession in particular. Now this is a difficult topic for us for a couple of reasons. First, in the classrooms and workplaces that you all inhabit throughout the week, the idea of bringing up God and Jesus is already akin in some people's minds to talking about Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. To admit that we believe in these beings, demons, and, and, and Satan is even further, could be even further embarrassing. The modern world has pushed away the demonic as just a silly myth, something that's only suitable for movies that have exorcisms in them. Even among Christians, there's a lack of clarity on this reality. A 2009 Barna study showed that 40% of those who claim to be Christians strongly agree that Satan isn't a real literal being, but rather just a symbol for the evil that humans do. And another 20% somewhat agreed. So over 50% of people who claim to be Christians in the United States have a lack of clarity on the realities that we see here in Matthew 8. Now the second reason this is a difficult topic is what encourages the first. The hesitation to admit these spiritual realities is understandable because of the endless speculation and massive abuse that has occurred over the centuries. One doesn't have to travel very far to get to the site of Salem, where as a result of being, women being accused of uh, being in league with the devil and devil worship, lost their lives. And even to the present day, people have experienced spiritual abuse by being accused, being accused of possession and devil worship. It's understandable that caught between these crosswinds of disbelief in the supernatural and the terrible abuses that have happened because of it, we prefer just to leave it alone. But that's not an option for we who want to be faithful to all of what Scripture teaches us. Fortunately, it's Scripture itself that helps us stand both against disbelief and speculation that can lead to the harm of others. So, as far as possession in particular, there isn't much more to say in this text or elsewhere in the Bible other than that it happens and that it's differentiated from illness. So for us, we can say that there's no reason to say that a possession couldn't happen today, but if there's there's any other means of explaining it, we shouldn't go there. Now in this text, at least this story in Mark, it says that the demon-possessed man is breaking chains, which is unexplainable by other means. They also know the true identity of Jesus, so this shows us that something truly spiritual is happening in this text. So if the Bible is precise enough to distinguish between sickness and demonic activity, we can give it the benefit of the doubt when it attributes someone's behavior to the demonic. Now I go through all of this this morning because understanding that demons are real, personal beings that wish us harm helps us appreciate the point of this passage that Jesus has authority over all things and even those beings that are set against him and his creation. 
Okay, so after all that, let's get back to the story with the disciples who wouldn't have needed all that 21st century table setting. They get off the boat wondering who this man is that they're traveling with, and some demons come and tell them. Look in verse 29. They say, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? These possessed, uncontrollable men who had been breaking chains and behaving so violently that the area became impassable approached Jesus in fear because they knew who he was. And like, just because of the storm, they knew they had to submit to his authority. They recognized his authority in three ways. The first is that they call him the Son of God. And Satan himself, during Jesus' temptation, does the very same thing, calling him the Son of God. And later, when some of the ones that Jesus is traveling with, Peter answers that you are the Son of God when Jesus asks, who do you say I am? And at his crucifixion, the, the centurion says the same. But for now, the disciples are in the dark about who Jesus is. They've heard a lot about the kingdom and what life in the kingdom is like from the Sermon on the Mount, but they've yet to realize that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. But these demons knew. They knew that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God. They know the truth of Colossians 1, 15 through 16, that he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of creation. For by him all angels were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. They're coming to Jesus recognizing that they aren't equal to him in any way. Christianity doesn't teach that there are two equally powerful forces of good and evil and that the outcome between that battle is unclear. These demons are only created beings. They're powerful beings, but they're only creatures who have rejected their creator. And that brings us to the second way that Jesus' authority is recognized. They fear his judgment. They say, have you come to torment us before the time? Because they know the time is coming that they have to wreak havoc on this earth is coming to an end. And that one day, all evil will be judged. They were like me when I knew the end of 1984. I didn't know how the end was coming. I knew that it was coming. But I didn't know how it was going to come about. In their desperation to avoid immediate judgment, they recognized Jesus' authority in a third way. They asked his permission to go into the pigs. It couldn't be more clear that the demons knew that a battle between them and Jesus would be no contest. Even if they hated him, they had to submit to him as his creatures. So Jesus' authority is recognized. In verse 32, we see that Jesus' authority is exercised. Look down with me at verse 32. What does Jesus say? He says, go. Now, scholars in Jesus' day say that uh, the people that expected exorcisms expected these elaborate rituals, which were probably similar to the kind of things that have been dramatized on TV, a, a spiritually powerful man enduring a marathon of activity with incantations and holy water and, and all kinds of other things, of hoping to drive the demon out. In contrast, Jesus does it all with the word, Go. And this is an imperative. This is, this is a command. This display of authority is undramatic compared to what they may have expected and may have seen other holy people do in the day, but it was unimaginably powerful. 
And this is because the power in Jesus' words is the same power that created everything from nothing in the beginning. When Jesus utters this one word, he's showing that this is my Father's world, and I and the Father are one. The demons are cast out, go into the pigs, and the pigs are destroyed. And this is likely just a symbol of the demons' hatred for God and all of his creation. This story brings up a lot of questions that we don't have clear answers to. And whenever I prepare to teach a text, I'd read through it and I'd just start writing down questions that come to mind. And many times those questions don't end up having answers. So here are a few of the ones that I had. What are the significance of the pigs? Why do the demons ask to be cast into them? Why does Jesus listen to them? What happens to the demons afterward? Are they destroyed? Are they allowed to stay in the area? Why are demons allowed to continue their work in the world anyways? And the truth is, I don't know. And we should refuse the impulse to speculate beyond what Scripture tells us because it can lead to the kinds of abuse that, we, that I mentioned earlier. So as a thousand questions are circling around, in, at least in my mind, and maybe yours, what is this text focusing us on? Or rather, Who? focusing us on Jesus, who's handily rebuking the most powerful forces, some of the most powerful material forces in the world in the storm, and the most powerful spiritual forces that are set against us. So I don't know why they're still present in the world today if God is in control, but here Jesus is showing us that he is unimaginably powerful, and if he's unimaginably powerful, maybe he's unimaginably wise as well. So we don't know the answers to a lot of the questions that we have, some that come out of this text, but we do know that he is perfect in love and power and purity as we sing. He's worthy of our trust. Jesus is demonstrating that he is something more than a man. He's who the demons say he is. He is the son of God. He's the God who came down to us and Satan and his demons are no match at all. 1 John 3.8 says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. And how did he do that? He did that primarily, primarily through the cross. Colossians 2.13-15 that we read together this morning says this, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. In the cross, our sins are freely forgiven. We've all failed to follow God's commands in one way or another, and we have a debt that we cannot pay. But those who trust in Christ can have their debts forgiven. So we rejoice in the cross for what it means for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, and we also rejoice in the cross because it means victory over those who are our spiritual enemies. And that the time is coming when we'll not have to worry about that enemy at all. Knowing the end was a source of terror for these demons, but it's an immense source of hope for us who trust in Christ. Now you might be thinking, I get the cross, I get that Jesus showed who he was by casting some demons out 2,000 years ago, but I've never seen a possessed person and I'm having trouble seeing how this is relevant to me. That's a fair question, but... The truth is that this is actually immensely relevant for us in every moment of our lives. That's because much of what the Bible tells us about demonic activity has not to do with possession, but more subtle forms of the influence that he exercises in this world. 
The most basic of these is temptation. We see in Matthew 4, Satan tempting Christ. And Satan and his demons tempt us as well. Shows us that when we give in to sin, it isn't only the internal pressure that we see in our hearts to do wrong, but there's an external pressure encouraging us, goading us to reject God in his ways. Now we're still fully accountable for our actions. Satan's probably really happy with that phrase, the devil made me do it, because it makes us deny our own responsibility in the things that we do, in our wrongdoing. It keeps us from understanding our need for the gospel. We're never forced to sin, and it's always a choice. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that God won't let us be tempted beyond our ability, and that he always gives us a way out. So this is, when I read that, that is both very, very convicting and also very comforting to me. It's convicting because it lays, when I sin, it lays the responsibility primarily at my feet. It's also immensely comforting because God has promised if we endure through temptation, he will provide a way out. Jesus resisted the devil's temptation to worship him, and instead of worshiping him, he defeated him on the cross. And because of Jesus' victory on the cross, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit and resist the lies of our enemy. The Bible tells us that if we resist the devil, he will flee. And this is because the one who has authority over him is dwelling in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The reality is, though, that despite the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we still sin. And when we do sin, Satan often changes his strategy. That's why he's called the tempter, but he's also called the accuser. The sin that he makes looks so good before we sin becomes the evidence he uses to accuse us and tell us that we are unworthy of God's forgiveness. And it's here too that Jesus' authority comes into play because of what he did on the cross, because of who he is, he has the authority to forgive our sins. So when Satan tempts us to despair over our sins, over our wrongdoing, telling us the truth about our sins, but neglecting to tell us the truth about the gospel. We say, you're right about that sin and so much more, but my God is forgiving me and you have nothing else to say in the matter. This text gives us hope individually, but also as a body together. Scripture teaches us that our enemy is at work in the church. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul encourages the Corinthian church to receive back into fellowship one that, he, that had been disciplined so that Satan may not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. He wants them to be aware of the ways that Satan is scheming within the church and against the church to hinder the work of God and destroy the lives of unbelievers and believers. There are many ways he might do this, and just a few of the ways that the Bible tells us is that Satan is involved in the spread of false teaching and false religion, and that he incites persecution in the church. But there are many more ways that he's actively working against this local body and the church as a whole. Finally, our enemy is at work in the world as a whole, and it's not for no reason that he is called the God of this world. Ephesians 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air, working in those who have rejected God. And since the fall, he's been wreaking havoc in the world out of hatred for God and his creatures, and he's going to do so until the ultimate judgment in the time. And if we ignore this spiritual reality, we run the danger of misunderstanding the evil that we see in the world. If we're trying to figure out why horrible things happen between individuals and churches in our country and around the world, we have to take into account 
The evil doesn't simply come from our sinful, from sinful individuals or the systems that they create. There's a spiritual force that is against us and that wants to use both individuals and systems to do us harm. And there are important ways we can and need to sin against individual and systemic factors that cause things like racism and violence and unjust war and genocide. But our battle as Christians is primarily spiritual. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says it this way, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, landed in disguise, and he's calling all of us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to secret wirelesses from our friends. And this is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. So we live in a world that's not our home, but enemy-occupied territory. And understanding this shocks us out of seeing going to church as a thing, a mundane thing that we do and go learn a bit about God and sing some songs to feel a little better. No, it's an apt subversion where we come together and worship King Jesus, the rightful ruler of this world, who came to earth and demonstrated his authority over the powers of darkness. And he is coming back for a final victory where he will set up a kingdom of righteousness that will last forever. We come together and rejoice in this authority, this authority over all creation and over demons, and we invite everyone to come and be a part of that kingdom that Jesus is going to set up. And so we put our hope in a future secured by the cross as we work and pray for God to use us in this time as we try to push back in the evil against the evil of the world. And part of how we do this is what we're commanded to do in Ephesians 5. It says, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So Christians oppose Satan individually by believing the gospel and exposing their own sin to him and asking for forgiveness. And they admit when they've wronged others and accept the consequences and the desire to make it right. We are not only unafraid, but we are eager to turn the lights on in the dark places of our institutions where sin has been covered because we believe that healthy institutions can be extremely helpful in spreading the gospel, but we also believe that no institution is worth preserving if it means that we have to cover up sin to preserve it. We seek to be faithful in our politics, exposing not only the errors and wrongdoing on the other side, which comes very easy for us, but also on our own side, even when it hurts our party or alienates us from it. And all this we remember, again, that our primary enemies are spiritual. And that can be hard for us to believe. But Ephesians 6.12 says that we do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we must keep this spiritual focus in mind because if we ignore it, we're likely to fall into the trap of Satan's schemes even as we pursue what's right. Most of the time, the work of our enemy is not as obvious as it is in this story. In fact, he may have a vested interest in remaining unseen in his activity. Carl Henry puts it this way, Satan is most successfully present when he's denied, forgotten, unexpected, or unnoticed. We should expect that Satan is scheming trying to twist our desires to do good and turn them toward ends that result in further wrongdoing. So if we're not careful, he'll have us seeing demons in the faces of our human opponents, 
demons who are irreconcilable to God and not worthy. This is why Jesus tells us earlier in this gospel to pull the log out of our own eye first and then pull the speck out of the other's eye. And both of these are immensely important to the work of the kingdom. They're essential. As I mentioned a bit ago, the Corinthian church responded rightly by by disciplining a sinning member of the church. But in their desire to be obedient, they were in danger of going too far and falling into the trap of unforgiveness after he'd repented. So as we pursue what's right, let's be on guard together that we don't fall into the traps of our enemy. So none of us may have never none of us may ever have an encounter like Jesus does here in Matthew 8. But when Jesus cast the demons out of these two men, we know that he has the power to overcome all the schemes of the enemy and all the ways that he set himself against us. So we can have confidence to push back against evil in this world. The reality of dark powers working in the world forces us to see that the problems that we see in the world are even worse than they appear at first. But we have a savior who is more unimaginably powerful than we can imagine. Jesus says in John 16:33 in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Our hope is in Christ who has the authority to calm storms and cast out demons with the word. And loves us enough so that he might die for us on the cross so that we can be reconciled to him. Because of this, we fervently pray and we stand against our enemy wherever he shows up. Because God is still exercising his authority over his creation today. So first we saw the declaration of Jesus' authority. And we see Jesus exercise his incredible authority. And in the final two verses, we see the response to Jesus' authority. Verses 33 through 34. Verse 33, the text tells us the herdmen, the pigs, see all of this happen and they run back to the town and tell them what happened. The reaction was not positive. They wanted them to leave. One commentator puts it this way Among the Jews, his miracle working power had attracted people to follow Jesus. But here in the Decapolis, they want to get rid of him. For them, he's not a messianic figure, but a wandering Jewish holy man whose activities have already caused a great deal of damage. He'll be safer back among his own people. So even though the herdsman's story emphasized how these demon-possessed men had been healed, how their lives had been redeemed, they're mostly concerned with the loss of the pigs. Now, this is an understandable sentiment in a day where there was no idea of a social safety net. FEMA wasn't going to go out there and, and you know, uh, examine the ecological and the economic impact and try to figure out how to help the area bounce back. They had no plan B for the prosperity of their town. Now, Mark tells us there are about 2,000 pigs, and, and what I thought would be a great use of my time this week, I calculated the loss in bacon. Um, so there's 2,000 pigs, and today you get about 16 pounds of bacon per hog. So when you times that by 2,000, that's 32,000 packs of bacon lost. And when you multiply that by the 9.99 a pack at, of, for Oscar Mayer bacon, because we're assuming this is the good stuff, 9.99 a pack at Market Basket, that works out to about $320,000 in just bacon alone. Now we have no idea what the true cost to these people was in Jesus' day, but Surely it was much, much more than that because these people's lives depended on the success of local agriculture. Several years ago, I worked at a 
a small church in a small town called Clarksville, Virginia. And I was told about a Rosa Stover plant that had closed down. And overnight, 800 jobs in a town of 3,000 vanished. Needless to say, it was devastating to the local economy. Purely in terms of jobs, it would be the equivalent that if every job that has to deal with education in Cambridge, and I think there are a few people that work in education in Cambridge, if every one of those jobs was lost, Harvard, MIT, and all the rest, which accounts for about 27% of employment here. Can you imagine how Jesus would be received if he showed up in Clarksville and shut down the plant, or if he showed up here in Cambridge and shut all the schools down? Even if there was irrefutable evidence of Jesus' power and authority, many would likely reject him purely because of the material loss. So this is the response of the town. They reject Jesus. The creator of all things has run out of town over some pigs. Jesus being around was just too costly for them. That's their response. And what's yours? It's true that being around and following Jesus is incredibly costly. We saw that earlier in verses 18 through 22, that following Jesus can cost us materially and relationally. And if we went around the room this morning and asked everyone that what they had given up for Jesus, we'd likely hear many stories of sacrifice, some of them deeply painful. We give things up to follow Jesus, but we must remember when we sacrifice in that way, we're only following our Savior and what he's already done. It can be exhausting living in enemy territory where we all have those particular sin struggles in our lives that we'd love to just go away or love to just give into for a little while for relief because we're tired of fighting. It's exhausting to resist day after day as we're tempted to push Jesus away because of the cost as these townspeople did. Now those who aren't Christians may be wondering why on earth would I want to follow Jesus? Why on earth would I want to go through that? It's because, despite of the stories of sacrifice represented here today, there's a joy, there's the presence of joy and happiness that can only come from being in a right, light, right relationship with God. And that's only available through that man, Jesus, that we're talking about here in this text. As I said, Jesus, through his demonstration of authority, is showing that he is God, and that his voluntary death on the cross for our sins shows us that he cares deeply for us. So those of you who aren't Christians, I urge you to consider following and accepting Christ. Accept the work of the cross for your forgiveness and become part of his kingdom this morning. And to those who do know him, who know about the sacrifice and know about the joy of following Jesus, hold tightly to God who is holding on to you. Just like when Julie told me about the end of 1984, God has told us the end. And unlike for these demons in this text, for us, we know that the end for us is good, unimaginably good. It's worth the battle because the war, the end of the war, is already certain. And as the song we're about to sing says of our enemy, one little word shall fell him. So may God give us joy as we labor for him in expectation of that day. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we're thankful for your authority over all creation, including those set against you and that are set against your church. God, we pray that you would continue to prevail over Satan and his demons.
God, we pray for this local church that you would help us push back against the darkness that's trying to encroach on this body. Help us to be faithful. Help us not to be divided, but centered around the gospel and proclaiming your kingdom here in Cambridge. Father, we're thankful that the time is coming to an end. Help us to look forward to that. Have joy in that. Have joy in you even as we sacrifice because you are worthy of praise and you alone are worthy of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.